You just have to get up every morning at six o'clock and clean the newspaper, go to work down the mill, 14 hours a day, week in, week out, for six months a week. And when we got home, our dad would thrash us to sleep with his belt. <laughs> Luxury. <laughs> we used to have to get out of the lake at three o'clock in the morning, clean the lake, eat a handful of hot gravel, work 20 hours a day at mill for twopence a month, come home and dad would beat us around the head and neck with a broken bottle if we were lucky. Are you trying to tell the young people of today that? And they won't believe you. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy and a bit of Monty Python to you. You don't know how lucky you are. People said that to their children and grandchildren all the time when I was growing up. Not anymore. Whether it's climate change, the economic impact of Covid or the ageing of the population, collectively the world's running up some pretty big bills right now. And young people feel they're already paying more than their fair share. In a few minutes, the economists Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan tell us what they think the future's going to look like as the population gets older. Spoiler alert, inflation makes a comeback. And that's the easy part. We also have one more snippet from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, talking about how the world of finance is going to help all of us get to zero carbon. But first an up-close and personal look at that generational divide we're seeing across the economy from our 20-something reporter-apprentice, Eileen Bagbo. That's the sound of young people in the centre of the northern English city of Liverpool last month, as the bars of the COVID-hit city closed for the final time before a new round of restrictions, large groups of revellers crowded onto the streets, hugging and chanting in protest as police tried to enforce social distancing. Such scenes, when Liverpool's hospitals were overwhelmed by the virus, drew condemnation from many. But as the pandemic drags on, there's a deeper frustration building among young people, which is harder to dismiss. The hard reality is that the people at greatest risk of dying from the virus are those of retirement age. But the economic disaster of COVID is disproportionately affecting the young and may do for many years to come. COVID has absolutely exacerbated these inequalities. That's Jill Filipovich, the millennial author of OK Boomer, Let's Talk. Job losses in the US have been overwhelmingly concentrated among young people and among millennials in particular. It's a similar story across the globe. At the height of the pandemic, unemployment for Americans aged 20 to 24 was more than 10 percentage points higher than for any other age group. And young people are starting to get resentful restrictions designed to protect others as they see their opportunities dwindling. Think about which industries got hurt hardest because of COVID and, you know, the attendant shutdowns, you know, and it's things like restaurants, bars, travel. All of those industries uh, are dominated by young people. It's young people, you know, millennials and, and Gen Zers who are bartenders and waiters and restaurant staff.
Those joining the labor market for the first time may see their careers derailed for years because they have to settle for a job outside their chosen field or get stuck in unemployment. In Germany and Switzerland, lots of people are concerned that the billions of dollars the governments are spending today will have to be paid back down the road, thwarting economic opportunity in the process. Tilman Kuban leads the youth arm of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel's party. He says young people are the triple losers of the crisis because it's costing them in terms of education, social opportunities and future government benefits. Those who are done with their training or their studies now face a jobs market in the worst recession ever in the history of the German Federal Republic. On the other side, there are the 300 billion euros worth of new debt that is being issued this year and next. A new issuance of debt bigger than Germany has ever experienced. The pile of debt is getting so big that our generation can hardly stomach it. As a 21-year-old living in London, I can tell you that the tug of war between generations didn't start with COVID-19. My friends and I have had to enter the job market burdened with student loans, struggling to get a foothold in a property market where starter homes cost nine times average wages. Thanks to teenage activist Greta Thunberg, we've also seen mass strikes by school children and students over climate change, all aimed at goading middle-aged politicians to do something about a global catastrophe that will overwhelmingly hit their children and their children's children. Economists at Deutsche Bank have warned that the pandemic is likely to only fuel this resentment among generations. To see which age group is doing best, Let's look at wages. Ultimately, financial well-being boils down to the amount of money people have in their pockets. Wage increases have been slowing across advanced economies, and the upshot is that today's young people can no longer count on out-earning their parents. So if you look at cohorts that were born in the 1940s, more than 90% of them on average uh, earned more than their parents did at, at the same age. That's Robert Manduka, a professor at the University of Michigan who has studied the decline in intergenerational mobility. So they, they almost universally had this experience of, of upward mobility where living standards were rising for everyone. Um, but that's really changed over the past uh, 40 or 50 years. So if you look instead at cohorts that were born in the 1980s, what we show is that only about half of them of Americans born in the 1980s grew up to out earn their parents at age 30. He says the phenomenon is strongest in the US, but it's also evident in other countries like the Netherlands and the UK. Slowing economic growth is a factor, but rising inequality is arguably an even bigger driver. So what we show is that, you know, the US and Norwegian GDP in aggregate grew about the same rate over the past 30 years, but incomes for 30 year olds kept up with GDP to a large extent in Norway, but did not in the United States. And so if 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 there had been sort of, I guess you could say like intergenerational equity, if the if the gains were being shared across all um, age groups in a society, the US uh, upward mobility rate would have been um, substantially higher, about 15 percentage points higher, probably. Part of the trouble boils down to demographics. In many advanced economies, the working age population is shrinking, 
That means that there are more older voters relative to young ones, and spending on things like state pensions consume proportionately more government resources. Think about the US. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are over the age of 70. Author Jill Filipovich thinks that this is part of the problem. You have this disproportionate share of power concentrated in the hands of older people. And that means that the policies that younger people need for themselves, for their families, for their children, um, you know, frankly, for the future of planet Earth, are not being, they're not being implemented. For Stanford University, Professor David Gursky, radical change is needed. He urges a root and branch overhaul of social systems like schools or the judiciary to ensure society becomes more equitable. That will help the economy too, he says. I would say that at least in the United States, but I think in all well-off countries, we have a deep commitment to providing opportunity to everyone and a deep commitment to the idea that uh, it shouldn't be that opportunity is only available to those who have the money to buy it. Buying into, into, into nice neighborhoods that have great schools, uh, providing that private education that, that in the U.S. case, a ticket to success, that, 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 you know, that being able to buy opportunity is not part of the dream. If we don't have equal opportunity, we're not living up to one of the most profound commitments that, that, we, that we all think should be part and parcel of what, 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 what a modern economy is, 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 is about. COVID is shaking up economies and societies. My generation has been asked to stay home to protect older generations. And mostly, we have. Now maybe it's time to think about how to pay young people back. So that gave us a sense of what the generational divide feels like today. But what about the future? Well, two very distinguished economists have a book out which claims demographic change is almost single-handedly going to turn everything we thought we knew about the 21st century economy on its head. Charles Goodhart is former chief economist of the Bank of England, emeritus professor of economics at the London School of Economics, and his co-author, Manoj Pradhan, is the founder of Talking Heads Macro and a former chief global economist for Morgan Stanley. They're, they're both on Stephanomics now. Um, Charles, great to have you here. Your book is called The Great Demographic Reversal. What exactly do you see going into reverse in future as a result of the world population getting older? Well, two major trends are going to change. The first one is a demographic change. Until very recently, what has happened is that in almost all countries, there has been an increase in the size of the working population relative to the those who are not working, dependents, as they are called, the young up to the age of about 20, and the retirees over the age of about 65. Uh, now, the old and the young consume, but they don't produce, and therefore they're inflationary almost by definition. And that means that as the demographics change and the proportion of dependence ceases to fall and now begins to rise very sharply as an increasing proportion of the population get to the age of over 65, uh, what is going to happen is that these trends is going to lead to greater inflation. Now, that is combined with the second trend, which is that prior to about a few years ago, 
Uh, the world was becoming more globalized in that production could move to areas where previously were not included in uh, the world's working system, particularly China, which incorporates a quarter of the world's population, and a great deal of, of particularly manufacturing production uh, went to these low-wage areas. Uh, and the union proportion of workers in unions has been going down steadily. This has effectively meant that the bargaining power of labour has weakened more or less continuously. Now, globalisation is in retreat uh, for obvious political and other reasons, and that retreat has actually been re-emphasised by the effect of the COVID crisis. Uh, so globalisation is on the retreat, the dependency ratios are worsening, and both of those are likely to... to um, bring about higher infl underlying uh, inflationary trends over future decades. You know, a lot of people will say, as we get older, we've also been told that we have to work longer. And doesn't that offset this inflationary effect? Because if people are working until they're 70 or 75, then you might not see a big change, as big a change in the ratio of, of workers to non-workers. Why, why wouldn't that help solve the problem? Well, until very recently, the trends have been exactly the reverse, in that life expectancy has been increasing much faster than any increase in the age of retirement. That's now changing a bit. Uh, but uh, even so, the increase in the number of the old is going to be very rapid and increasing the age of retirement is politically extremely unpopular and it is only introduced very gradually and very gingerly in virtually every country. And even in Putin's Russia... And Putin probably has a greater control over his population than almost any other autocratic leader. Uh, his attempt to raise the retirement age ran into such political opposition that it was about the only thing that he was forced to uh, modify and to an extent backtrack on. Um, it's just politically extremely difficult. One quick thing I wanted to add... Um is that I, I think I think we also have to take a look a slightly deeper look into the demographic trends as well. For example, what is changing now is that the number of people who are what we would call the oldest old is increasing sharply. And as that age group starts increasing, along with it comes the attendant increase in uh, diseases like dementia that make people unable to look after themselves. And that means that an increasing number of the labor force is going to start looking after these people. Now, that's what Charles and I would call socially productive activities. But in the true economic sense, they are producing a product which is consumed by the old who then do not go on to produce anything else. So I'm not sure we can call it economically productive. So dire as the UN population statistic projections are for demography, they do not include that a larger part of the population, and in fact an increasing one, will go towards these socially but not economically productive activities. So the, the story is actually a little bit more difficult than the statistics show. I think it's interesting because a lot of people will say, and certainly businesses who think about how does the economy change when there's a lot more old people, um, 
it's wonderful to be able to sell lots of cruises and other things to the newly retired or the fit retired. But in general, people feel like you, there is less consumption from old people and that that could be a problem for the economy. I guess your point is there's less consumption in terms of things like going to restaurants and other things. But at that crucial, those last few years, if you're very old, can be enormously expensive and draining of social resources. Yes, absolutely. If we accept the demographics, there's another assumption that you make uh, that we can't offset this with faster productivity growth. You're assuming that the econ- that economies which are older overall, a global economy that is older, is going to grow more slowly and have relatively sp- relatively low productivity with that. I guess a lot of people would say, well, hang on, we have all this innovation. Why, why wouldn't we become more productive to compensate? Well, to take one point, I mean, some people think that robotics can deal with the old... Um, I can tell you that that will not happen. Anyone who's been in a dementia ward, and unfortunately I have been with my older brother, knows perfectly well that what the old people really need uh, is emotional support. And the emotional quotient of a robot is exactly zero. Uh, Robots can help with certain repetitive physical tasks, maybe like lifting people in and out of bars or in and out of bed. But in terms of looking after uh, people with Parkinson's or dementia, uh, the idea that robots can do this is just, just, is just not true. What we are going to need, unfortunately, in some ways in future, is much more of, emp- of the qualities that we'll need will be empathy and emotional support Uh, rather than muscular strength. If I may, one small point to add is just related to the uh, argument I was making earlier, which is that we will need an increasing number of um, uh, people to look after the elderly. What Charles and I are hoping for is that we do see job destruction in other parts of, of the economy. In fact, we depend on robotics and automation to get rid of repetitive tasks in the manufacturing sector, in parts of the services sector, uh, without that, you would see a net decline in the working age population at a much faster pace. So some of the robotics and automation stories that are happening right now are actually part and parcel of our thesis, without which our thesis would be a lot scarier, if you will. We need that job destruction. So that's fascinating. So when people look at these jobs disappearing in all these industries, you're saying that can't happen fast enough because we don't realise we've got this enormous need for jobs coming and we need as much uh, as many people as possible to do those jobs. Exactly right. I mean, if you look at how the National Healthcare Service has revealed itself to be completely underfunded, the demands of the future looking after the elderly are something that is simply not part of the equation right now. We're only looking at one piece of the puzzle, which is the automation part, but not the other. But if you have a lot of people moving in, if it, what, sound, what your sounds like you're talking about is a lot of people moving from the private sector to the public sector, how does that get financed? Even if you're moving the workers, how are you able to, to pay for that shift into the public sector? 
if you've got a reduced private sector? That's a very good question, because uh, if you look further forward, what you will see is increasing costs of medicine, increasing costs of pensions, uh, increasing costs of public support for the old. And that is one of the factors uh, which, even before the COVID pandemic hit, was driving expenditures, public sector expenditures, up relative to tax revenue. And that is going to be a problem. Uh, one of the uh, effects of all of this is going to be that taxation is going to really have to rise quite sharply. And here the difficulty is that, like raising the retirement age, increasing taxation is very unpopular. If we do not increase taxation relatively rapidly, the only real way that we can then get out of this increase in debts and deficit is actually through inflation. It's worth spelling out, I mean, we spend some time on this podcast uh, talking about financial markets, although possibly less than, than other parts of, of Bloomberg. And it, it, we should probably make clear that if you're right, an awful lot of people are going to lose a lot of money based on the current pricing of financial assets. So could you just spell out um, it, how different your view of the world is than the one that's currently expressed in bond prices and the record low, very long term interest rates, the low, record low interest rates that are currently being charged to, to governments all around the world for borrowing? Well, I think it couldn't be more different. Just to give you a very quick preface into the argument that comes in, most people look at 10-year and 20-year yields um, and they say um, what's priced into the markets is that inflation is, is never going to rise and we are going to have low for longer. The only question is whether real yields uh, come up into slightly positive territory or slightly negative territory because of the vagaries of inflation. And sorry, to be clear, that's also why long-term mortgage rates are currently extremely low as well. Everyone can borrow for a very long time at a fixed rate, which is extremely low. Correct. And, and it goes beyond that also, I think, because it goes on to a more nuanced argument that says, if inflation is not part of the problem, then the central bank really does not have a growth inflation trade-off, which means every time growth is in trouble, central banks can ease policy and they don't really have to tighten, which means the equity market can depend very solidly on a central bank put in a way that just would not be possible in an inflationary uh, environment. And how has COVID changed this? Well, it's actually fascinating because uh, it, the COVID has led to two very, very different scenarios. Scenario one, which is the mainstream one, is the resulting unemployment, the uh, need for industrial adjustment and all that will keep inflation even lower for uh, as long as all that continues. The argument against that has been that the massive policy uh, expansion, both fiscal and monetary, uh, is going to mean that the inflationary pressures will occur stronger and quicker than we had actually initially thought. We are expanding the money supply and we're expanding public sector debt like crazy. And we won't stop until inflation actually does hit sufficiently su strongly to make everyone have to uh, change their tune. And the quest great question is, when is that going to be? What is going to be the stronger force uh, determining inflation in the next few years? Unemployment or monetary growth and expansionary policy? 
And we don't know. We've never really been in a situation where the two main uh, determinants of inflation have been so strongly moving in quite opposite directions. Just a, a final question. And without uh, embarrassing Charles, I would say I'm glad that a, con- a whole podcast about generational challenges, we have all generations represented on this programme, having started with someone in their 20s. Um, but Eileen, who spoke to us at the beginning of the programme, feels like many 20-somethings uh, that quite already quite put upon as a generation, facing much tougher challenges um, financially than, than her previous generations what's the the sort of single best way that older generations could try and do right by people of her age group what's the thing that that uh, if we were being selfless or the x's and the baby boomers and and older people what's the best thing that they could do to make this scenario less painful well in the very short run i get the vaccine through so that we can all go back to some normality. The young can enjoy university again. My grandchildren are now in university and it's not what it should be. Uh, Nor, of course, is the job market what it should be. Uh, So the the first short-run need is to get the vaccine distributed and get back to normality and allow the young a reasonable life again. They have been worse hit by the pandemic probably than any other group except perhaps the over 80s uh, who are so vulnerable. Uh, In the longer term, um, I have to say that I really rather wish that the future that we paint does not come about for one reason or another because it is actually going to be really quite difficult to manoeuvre our way through. Uh, I fear that we are going back to something rather akin to the stagflation of the 1970s uh, for quite a long time and in a much worse condition than we were then because the underlying debt ratios have become so much worse. Uh, I, I think that I would in some ways respond to you along what the Irishman is always supposed to have said, I wouldn't I would rather not have started from here. <laughs> Charles Goodhart, Manoj Pradhan, thank you very much. I did promise you one more slice of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Here's Mark Carney, former Bank of England governor, now UN Special Envoy for Climate Action, talking to my colleague, the Bloomberg television host Alex Steele, about how to make all finance sustainable finance. Uh, Mark, there's been data that says that total required investment in the energy sector is going to be $3.5 trillion a year, and a lot of that going to say carbon capture to decarbonize uh, the world. Tell me how we get there. (laughs) Well, uh, and that data is right, and that's just energy, really, it's energy infrastructure. And then there's uh, decarbonization above and beyond that in other sectors of the economy. Uh, So we need a whole economy transition. We need uh, to mainstream sustainable finance. We need to ultimately get to a point where Every financial decision is taking climate change into account, the impact on the transition. And we actually drop the adjectives uh, sustainable because it's just what uh, finance professionals do. So we're going to get to sort of the policy part of it in a second. But financial flows are really important and the private sector money is going to be key. How do we get more money from the private sector? 
Well, I think we what we're working to do is with the private sector to put in place the information, um, the tools, and the markets that are needed in order to do this. The information, it starts with reporting, and it's the TCFD reporting, making it mandatory so all companies are reporting their climate risk. That's something actually Mike Bloomberg uh, spearheaded five years ago. It's moving into mainstream. We want it everywhere by COP26. Secondly, on the risk side, we need the banks to look at the risks around the climate transition, which then flip to opportunities. On the opportunity side, uh, it's really about looking for and at transition plans from all companies and backing those who are part of the solution and taking capital away from those who are part of the problem. That's how you mainstream. One last point, and I know we'll get to this, is it's very important to also help build those nature-based solution and carbon offset markets as well. That's a missing market and it should be uh, measured in the uh, tens of billions a year. How long do we have and how long is that gonna take? How long, well, we don't have a lot of time at the moment with the carbon budget on where we're headed, uh, somewhere between 10 and uh, 20 years, depending on how you measure it. Uh, so we need to act now and we need to buy some time. Uh, that's part of what offsets will do for us. Um, but uh, also, uh, we need to invest now. I mean, we're, we're you know, touch wood, we're gonna be coming out of uh, the health and economic crisis. Uh, the question is, what direction are we pointing our economies? We're gonna point towards sustainable growth. Huge investment, you rightly started with that, Alex, huge numbers uh, for investment that's capital intensive, it's job heavy. Um, having that information now so companies and investors can put money to work is critical. So what role then does policy play in that? Um, we just had an election obviously here in the US. Um, what's the role of public policy? Yeah, so I think there's a couple roles. One, and I wouldn't under, understate this first bit, is set the direction. So one of the one of the planks of uh, President-elect Biden's uh, platform was the U.S. is going to move to 100% clean energy and net zero by 2050. So you set the direction. Secondly, you put in place the frameworks that are necessary that that information for investors to make the decision, and you also um, have credible regulatory policy. So you're a lot, you're you're showing the direction of the economy more hydrogen, um, you know, zero emission vehicles, moving towards electrifying more of the economy and moving economy, or sorry, the elect, uh, electricity sector and generation towards renewables. All of those things send signals to investors, provide the information as well, and gets money moving. So that's what government has to start with the objective, fill in with the, the framing, and then candidly get out of the way so the private sector uh, figures out uh, where to go. Does, has COVID helped or hurt that? I think, you know, if you'd asked me that question 10 months ago or nine months ago when it started, I've, I've, I would have hedged uh, like a good central banker. I would have told you both sides of it. Uh, <laughs> now that the is uh, in, uh, absolutely, it is. It has helped uh, because it, it's forced a couple of things. One is um, a social reset. You know, we, we've all sort of stepped back and thought, well, what are some of our priorities? Resilience for our economy, sustainability, solidarity, all these aspects. Uh, but also strategic resets for companies because, look, there are a few companies and they've benefited through valuations uh, that were well positioned for uh, the shifts that COVID's brought on. But most companies are having to change their strategies, re-optimize given what's happened. As they re-optimize, if they're in one of 126 countries now, not including the U.S. yet, but the 126 countries that have a net zero strategy, if you want to be around for the long term, you're going to have a net zero strategy. That helps because it, it, it brings forward uh, the investment that we need to get to where we need to go.
So we have public policy, uh, we have private money, and I just want to get your take on uh, what central banks can do to help this or not. Uh, the Fed recently joined the network for greening in the financial system. They were late to the party, but is there a role for central banks here? There's absolutely a role, which is why the Fed is uh, joining, and I very much uh, salute Vice Chair Quarles for uh, that announcement. Um, look, there's a few things central banks can do, and as you know, Alex, central banks vary by jurisdiction. Some have more powers than others. But if you oversee the banking system, uh, what a central bank can do is ask the banks, have you thought about uh, where your exposures are and where your opportunities are as we transition towards net zero? That's something the Bank of England's doing. You can take it all the way to conducting climate stress tests, which 18 of the world's major central banks are doing. You can also start to think about your collateral policy over time, because ultimately, uh, you know, again, speaking like a central banker, Badge's uh, dic dictum is you lend against good collateral. Well, in a world where you're transitioning towards net zero, good collateral is consistent with that transition. And that's something the ECB is looking at, other central banks are looking at. So there's a range of things we can do. In the end, though, we're not going to set carbon policy or climate policy. Governments are going to do that, and, and the private sector is going to provide the solutions. Oh, one last question on this. Um, can we do it without China? How key is China going to be in all this? China is key to virtually everything in the in the world, just as the United States is and the European Union is. Um, it was very significant a few weeks ago when President Xi announced China's uh, 2060 net zero objective. China is one of the biggest producers of electric vehicles, of wind, of solar. Um, uh, they have to do a lot more. They know they have to do a lot more, but they'll be essential, uh, as all major economies uh, will be, and that's part of what the UK has to do in partnership with Italy is uh, for COP26 over the course of the next 12 months. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on the ground reporting and analysis. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Monty Python, Eileen Bagbo, Catherine Bosley, Nimrod Allon, Charles Goodhart, Manoj Pradhan, Alex Steele and Mark Carney. I should add that Julin and Prim Chuaric helped out with End of Currents piece from Asia last week and didn't get a mention. Sorry about that and thank you to them too. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. 